4: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest.
6: Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people.
3: What's up, everybody? Welcome to Financial Heresy, where we talk about how money works so that you can make more, keep more, and give more. Today, I have Joseph Wang. He is known online as the Fed Guy, and he is a former Federal Reserve insider. He worked on the open markets desk there. So we've got tons of fantastic insights for you today on how the Fed works, what his role was there, what he learned while he was there, how the inner workings of the banking system work and what that means today for what the Federal Reserve is doing with quantitative tightening the banking system, whether it's safe or on the verge of collapse, uh, what the reverse repo facility uh, what role it plays in uh, in the current conditions with inflation and the money supply very excited to share this interview with you guys today lots of great insights and without further ado Joseph Wang all right well thank you so much for joining me today I'm very excited uh, to ask you uh, all about the inner workings of the system you are one of the one of the rare few who actually knows what it's like inside the belly of the beast so thanks for joining me today my pleasure. It's, a, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, uh, let's get started by uh, briefly going over your story. Um, uh, you were on the uh, open markets desk. So tell us about what it's like and uh, what you did there. So
7: the open markets desk is the Fed's trading desk. And that may be surprising to some, but, you know, the Fed does a lot of stuff in the markets. They go out and do QE, purchase trillions of dollars in in treasury securities. They do repo loans. They do emergency FX swap lines. So that's all done by by the desk, which is the Fed's trading desk. And so uh, on there, we do two things. One, of course, is that we trade on behalf of the Fed. And the other, which I find more interesting, is basically acting as the markets intelligence for, for the Fed. So, for example, if you're on the desk, you have relationships with a wide range of market participants, hedge funds, foreign central banks, money funds, commercial banks, dealers, and so forth. And because you're at the Fed, they're willing to speak with you in a very candid way. So, when something happens in the markets, we could call up a wide range of contacts, figure out what they're saying from their perspective, and then put together a picture that we then present to to, to the Fed, uh, to the FOMC. So you gather market intelligence and you implement open market operations. And I really liked it because it was a way you can get a really behind the curtains look as to how the financial markets worked. You have access to contacts and data that no one else does. So it was a really good learning experience.
3: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Now there's this uh there's this perception out there that gained popularity uh during twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one called the uh that the that the Fed, you know puts their plunge protection team out there and that that you got you know when the when the stock market starts to fall just a little bit too much they start printing a bunch of money you go out there and just start buying up stocks (laughs) is is that what you were doing
7: (laughs) (laughs) I, i guess i was part of the plunge protection team but as far as i know and you know the desk is not that big we do not buy equities so you know if it's done it's not done through the fed it's not done through the desk it'd be something else so as far as i know that does not happen it does look sure, like that yeah. sometimes, but, right?
3: <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. All right, so let's, uh, let, let's bring, uh, bring this around to uh, what's going on today. Address the economic elephant in the room. The banking system seems to be in trouble. A lot of people are looking at this like the repeat um, or you know uh, the sequel to the great financial crisis. Uh, banks are in trouble. Banks are falling over. Uh, you know, dollar wise uh, have uh, already eclipsed two thousand eight, um, and so uh, what is your view right now on the banking system? And is the trouble behind us, or is it just starting? Well, first
7: I, I note that there is a big disconnect between what we see. In the stock prices and what's happening on the ground when we look at the stock prices especially the regional banks they looks it looks like armageddon right they're, they basically imploded but if you actually listen to what they're saying what their earnings calls were like you get a very different picture now the picture that they paint for you and i, I don't think they'd lie if they lied about things like this they would get sued because of course they're a publicly traded company is that they noted that they had big deposit outflows in march during the big panic involving Silicon Valley Bank. And then those deposit outflows slowed down and then they reverted back. And so as of early May, so I'll, I'll talk about um, Western Alliance, for example, which recently, uh, because your stock got sold a lot, they actually had a public statement just to, just to calm the market down. They're saying that, you know, when we look at our own business, everything seems pretty stable. We don't have meaningful deposit outflows. So that big disconnect, I think, is driving a lot of confusion. If you think back to March, we had Silicon Valley Bank, we had First Republic have tremendous, tremendous amounts of depositor outflow. They have very much a bank run. And in line with that dynamic, their stock price basically went to zero because everyone was afraid that they might not make it. Here today, people are looking at the stock prices thinking, my gosh, there must be a bank run, but that's not happening. That, that, that's a, that there's a disconnect there. However, mm-hmm. now if you're just a normal depositor and you're looking at your bank stock and you see it tanking, you could panic. And so even if a bank is fine at the moment, if its stock price keeps declining, that could actually precipitate a bank run. So I think that's where we are today. We're at a place where the, where the regional banks, their deposit outflows have stabilized, um, but their stock prices are going down. And if that, doesn't, if that doesn't also stabilize, I think we could precipitate more bank runs. Um, it looks like it's stabilizing. I mean, you can't go down every day. And I think the SEC is also making noises along with Jamie Dimon, that perhaps we should have some kind of a short sale ban. So I think that that's where we are today. But, you know, I'd also take a step back and just kind of think about just from a, you know, top down view of what happened over the past couple of months. We had Silicon Valley Bank fail. We had First Republic Bank just recently fail. We had Signature Bank fail as well, and Silvergate. What is it that connects all these banks together? When I think about it, it seems like these banks uh, heavily built their business around a very speculative aspect of the economy, specifically uh, VC and crypto, basically the more speculative aspects of tech that benefited tremendously from easy money. Now, that had hiked rates and did quantity of tightening, obviously, the, the sectors in the economy that benefited the most uh, got hurt the most. And we saw the big implosion in crypto uh, last year, and we've seen the big implosion in a lot of the uh, speculative tech. So, it seems like what happened was that banks that were deeply tied to those segments of the economy also got taken down. So, I don't really think of this as systemic. I think of this as basically those banks went down precipitating potentially a panic that is so far at least contained as long as uh, the stock prices are more stabilized
3: so the what happened during the great financial crisis was more of an issue of the banks held assets that got the banks in trouble Um, toxic assets. And now it's not so much that it's, it's the bank run that if the depositors weren't pulling their money out of the banks, then um, you know, as long as these assets are held to maturity, they're, they're good at, I mean, a lot of it is just, it's treasuries. And so there's not a toxic asset problem. There's a depositor outflow problem. Joe, you're, you're exactly right. So in
7: 2008, it was very much a crisis of the banking sector. The banks had bad assets. There's a credit problem there. That meant, as you suggested, that the banks made a loan and they wouldn't get their money back. So, the banks were sitting on losses. They were, in some cases, insolvent. Now, this time, it's very different And that when we look at the banks that went down, largely, they were holding assets that were money good, but of course, um, they had a liquidity problem. Now, I think about a bank like this. So, a bank has let's say, longer-dated assets, and it has largely deposit liabilities. Now, let's say you buy a treasury or mortgage-backed security. It's going to get paid down, but but it's in the future. And so, if interest rates go up and down, you can have unrealized losses or unrealized gains on those assets. Okay. Now, let's think about this in two cases. Let's say that a bank borrowed overnight money and used that to buy a 10-year treasury. When the interest rates go higher, the bank has unrealized losses on those treasuries, and the people who lent them money overnight could say that, hey, this bank is insolvent, so I want my money back now. So the bank then would go and have to sell that treasury immediately, realize those losses, and then go bust, because obviously, let's say you borrowed $100 to buy $100 in treasuries, interest rates went up, treasuries are worth $90, well, you you lost $10 and you go bust. Now let's look at another case. Let's say the bank borrows 10-year money and goes to buy a 10-year treasury security. Interest rates Mm -hmm. go up. They have unrealized losses on their treasury security. But, you know, they have 10-year, they borrow 10-year money. So in 10 years, the treasury security gets paid down. They have $100 and they use it to pay $100 loan back. Now, most banks are funded with deposits. The question is, is a deposit an overnight borrowing like the first case, or is it a 10-year borrowing like the second case? So let's say you and me in practice, we have money in a bank. In practice, we don't go and take out all our money back every day, right? That's nonsense. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we don't leave our money in the bank forever either, right? So a deposit, it's not overnight money. It's not 10-year money. What is it? It, It's somewhere in between. It's a term Mm -hmm. borrowing, but you just don't know what the term is. A big part of the bank's business is to manage its deposits to make them as sticky, as long-term as possible. And there's a lot of ways to do this. An obvious way, of course, would be to raise interest rates they pay to depositors. But the surprising thing is that most depositors aren't super interest rate sensitive. Other ways that the bank can try to make their depositors sticky is to just bring them into the ecosystem, kind of like Google or Apple. So let's say that you have a deposit at Chase. Well, they give you a Chase credit card. It's linked to your Chase account. Super convenient. They give you a Chase mortgage, also linked to your Chase account. Maybe they even give you special status, special points for being a good Chase customer, things like that or they could have very fancy technology, or you can be like Capital One, you have a card with us, we give you coffee. There's so many ways that a bank can try to build what's called depositor franchise to make their depositors sticky that don't have anything to do with interest rates. Now these strategies, sometimes are successful, sometimes they're not. Let's talk about two times when they were not successful. First Republic, their strategy was to find a lot, lots of rich people and say, I'm going to give you a really, really cheap mortgage on one condition. I'm your bank. You keep your money with me. Okay, there you go. That's how you build loyalty. Or Silicon Valley Bank. They go and you find these startups where nobody wants to lend them money. Silicon Valley steps in, they lend them money on one condition. I'm your bank. You keep your money with me. Now, these are ways that they're trying to build uh, loyalty, trying to make their deposits sticky, trying to turn that overnight money into like a, I'd say, three, four, five-year loan to the bank. Those strategies were not successful. But that doesn't mean that it's always unsuccessful, right? So uh, a common thing that that any bank or medium or large banks do is that they go to a corporation and say, hey, we're not going to give you, you know, market interest rate, but this is what we can do for you. Every month, you have to pay your employees, right? Direct deposit, 100 employees, that costs money. That's a transaction cost. Maybe you have to do it twice a month. We'll do that for you, but you keep your money with us. So, again, banks can have a lot of ways to manage their uh, their deposit liabilities to make sure that they're sticky so that they won't be in these liquidity problems. And that's what we are. Like you mentioned, Joe, there's no credit here. They bought treasuries, they bought agency MBS, which is stuff guaranteed by the government. What they failed to do was to manage their liquidity properly, their deposit liabilities. And that's, that's a difficult thing to do, but they also did it very poorly. So far, the other regional banks that I've looked at are doing it much
0: My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over.
1: and with ads on linkedin you'll be able to reach people based on job title industry likelihood to buy and more start converting your b2b audience into high quality leads today we'll even give you a hundred dollar credit on your next ad campaign go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit that's linkedin.com slash customer terms and conditions apply
4: linkedin the place to be to be hi there i'm bob Pittman, chairman and ceo of iHeartMedia. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to math and magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
8: If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue.
3: Better. well specifically with the regional banks I've heard that uh, commercial real estate uh, could be an area of concern um uh, especially because you know it's not like like residential mortgages they're not 30-year fixed they're you know three year five year seven year adjustable rate balloon uh payments at the end bridge loans um is that a concern for the system or just a few banks who are overexposed so
7: There was a really interesting report from the Federal Reserve about about this. So they heard everyone was worried about commercial real estate, and so they took a deep dive into it. Now, first, you have to note that commercial real estate is a really, really broad asset class. It includes hospitals, it includes industrial space, multifamily, malls, and it also includes, of course, office space. Now, broadly speaking, commercial real estate is, is, is doing fine. I mean... We have an inflationary time, so, you know, the price of stuff like real estate has gone up. The big, big exception, of course, is office space, particularly office space Mm -hmm. in really big cities. And in connection to that, also retail in big cities. So if you don't have workers going into those offices, all those other businesses like, let's say, restaurants and so forth that are dependent upon those workers also do poorly. So, the question is not so much commercial real estate, is that who has exposure to all these downtown office space and downtown retail? So, when the Fed broke it down, they came up with a really interesting finding. Well, first of all, the big banks, the GSIBs, so a, a GSIB is like a globally systemically important bank, have very small exposure. And also, though, the big regionals also have a very small exposure. So when you're thinking about a regional like PNC, like m and like Huntington's, they have small exposure to that segment of the markets. Where is the exposure? The exposure is in the small banks that many people have never heard of. So in the U.S., we have over 4,000 banks. We've heard of you know, the JPMs and cities, but there are thousands of banks that we've never heard of before. And those banks collectively hold about $500 billion of exposure to, um, to this sensitive sector. That, that's pretty bad because they're small banks. But b- before we go in panic, I, I will know two things. One is that you don't actually know how how well they underwrote this. Maybe they, you know, lent against a lot of collateral, so their loan to value is, is very low. And, of course, something that's very positive is that because these banks are so small, um, it's not systemic, so it's not going to spread into the financial system the way that the 2008 financial crisis would again, if these office buildings really go bust, there's potential for a credit issue, um, but it's just a potential. And first, of, and of course, it's not going to be systemic because not even the regionals are that involved. It's really the small banks, according to the report.
3: Okay, so uh, I know that within the next like year and a half, there's something like one and a half trillion dollars worth of commercial real estate debt that is needing to get rolled over, but because of the size of the large banks. If only five hundred billion is with the small, the other trillion is with the larger banks. Then it's spread out, then it's like these banks don't have like overexposure. They've got very little exposure. Um, is that is that what I'm? Did yeah. I, did so I get the that big right? banks.
7: So again, first commercial real estate is broad. We have one area that is in a lot of right. trouble. The other areas are fine. Now, among this commercial real estate that gets to, that has to be rolled over, I'm not exactly sure how much of that is this downtown office and retail. So, I'm not exactly okay. sure. But I, with, the other, with respect to the broader question about whether or not, let's say, interest rates are higher if people are able to roll it over, I'll make one observation. is that over the past few years, because we have been in an inflationary period, real estate prices have gone up a lot. So, let's say five mm-hmm. years ago, maybe your bank and you lent $50 to a Fifty dollars to a developer, and the developer took fifty dollars, added fifty dollars in equity, and bought a hundred dollar building. Well, fast forward five years from now, that building has appreciated a lot. So that means that the borrower has a lot more equity in the deal, and that makes the lender, the bank, a lot more secure. So we have to keep that in mind as well. So okay. the, you know, when you have inflation, that it kind of washes away the uh, the debt in in a sense. So, sure. Sure. I, I'm not that concerned about, about, about that at the moment.
3: Okay. For the, uh, specifically the office space. And, uh, if it's, you know, uh, concentrated with some of the small banks that, uh, that, you know, basically worst case scenario, there are going to be some small banks that are in trouble as a result of this, which means that it's not systemic, like you said. Um, and also with these small banks, they're probably not in the same situation that First Republic or Silicon Valley where most of their deposits are uninsured. Most of their deposits are probably under that, you know, 250, 250,000 FDIC limit. So we don't have the risk of depositors losing their money and triggering a bank run. Um, however, in my in my mind, Let's say, you know, in this worst case scenario, one of the risks is that we continue to have a lot of consolidation. I mean, even just the fact that we don't know, we don't have the visibility into these uh, all of this data from all the small banks that lends towards more consolidation, more regulation that makes it harder for small businesses, maybe uh, small banks. Among and then consolidation towards the big banks. Do you view that as uh, as a risk? So first of all, Joe, you're
7: absolutely correct that the smaller banks have a much stronger deposit base. I looked into the data, and it's pretty shocking. Basically, the smaller the bank you are, the the higher the percentage of your deposits that are insured. And that kind of makes sense, right? You go to a small community Mm -hmm. bank, you don't have big corporations banking there. It's mostly mom and pop, and they don't have more than 250000 Now, on your question about consolidation, so I think that's mixed in my view. So first of all, I think it's good that we have a lot of small banks being able to serve a broad range of people. If you're a big bank, obviously you want to make big loans. Obviously, it would be kind of a waste of time for you to be making these small $10,000 loans and so forth. So having small banks, I think, better serves our community. But on the other hand, though, it's very clear that small banks you know, sometimes are not very sophisticated and they can make really bad decisions. And we saw that with Silicon Valley, which at the end of the day was a bank, that a small bank that grew very quickly and was obviously very unsophisticated. So when you have a lot of unsophisticated banks, accidents can happen. So, bigger banks, I think, do make the system safer simply if only because they are too big to fail. If you take a step back, you'll see that I think a few decades ago, we had over 10,000 banks. Now, we have 4,000. Mm-hmm. So, consolidation is like it is in every other industry. Uh, once we had. Like it's like the Amazon effect. It's winner take all, especially when you have these big technology platforms that like a JP Morgan can have that other banks really can't compete with. So, uh, you know, I like to have more small banks, but I think the strong trend is, is that we're going to have fewer and fewer banks. Um, so I think that's, that's, that, that seems pretty clear to me.
3: Now, what about the uh, what about the credit crunch uh, the media over the last, I would say, month or so has been uh, um, has been talking a lot about the uh, credit crunch and how it could hurt small businesses, um, how what appetite for borrowing, maybe not from consumers like with credit cards, but borrowing, you know, uh, you know loans, small businesses uh, is severely declining. Is this credit crunch an issue or is that something that's overblown as well? so i think that's the question we want to look at in term- if
7: we want to see what the macroeconomic impact would be so when a bank makes a loan it's basically creating money and giving it to people to spend and invest so the more credit that banks create the more money there is to spend and invest and, and that's positive for the economy so so far so the concern of course is that oh we have some disturbance in the banking sector and, and banks are going to be more reluctant to make loans and that will slow economic growth so The way that I go about looking at this is to actually listen to what the banks are saying and to look at the Fed's weekly data. The Fed publishes weekly data on bank loans. Now, taking a step back, over the past six months, banks have been tightening their lending standards and reducing the amount of loans they make. That's been something that's been happening uh, far before whatever happened in March. So this is normal because we're in an economic cycle. We had a huge boom the past couple of years, and the banks are becoming more wary. They're prepared for potential recession, and so they're slowing down their lending. So that's been happening for the past few months. From what I see, what happened in March, it sounds like it should have an impact in further tightening, but so far I haven't really seen that. Um, first, the Fed's most recent survey of loan officers. So they surveyed banks, asked them if their credit centers have changed. Now, when it comes to small businesses, which, of course, is the most sensitive area that we're thinking of, about half the banks said that you know we tightened uh, standards somewhat, and about half said they didn't tighten at all. So, it doesn't seem like it's had a big impact. When I look at the weekly Fed data, banks continue to make a modest amount of loans every week. So, there doesn't seem to have been a contraction so far. And that is consistent with my view that Overall, the banking system is fine. We had some disturbance and we have huge volatility in their stock prices. But so far on the ground, based upon what they're saying, their underlying business hasn't been hugely disturbed. In fact, depending on the regional bank that you ask, they'll tell you that they over there have loan growth about flat 2% to as high as 7% estimated for this year. So it it is, you know, it's we got thousands of banks Everyone has their own little business niche, their own little region. I would hesitate to paint too broad a brush as to what we saw in in the Bay Area to the rest of the country.
3: Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, Um, speaking of speaking of deposits again, um, over the last I don't know, probably two years. uh, well, two years ago, I think, is when we started seeing uh, a large amount of money start to flow into the reverse repo facility at the Fed. And then for about the last, I think, year, it's been right sitting right around like two to two point two trillion. Um, and so explain if you could for us, what is the reverse repo facility at the Fed? What is all that money doing in there? Like, why is it in there? And then um what would cause it to go up or down and what would be the implications of if it did start to go up more or start to decrease quickly from here?
7: Yeah. So first I'd make an observation about the banking system since I've heard many people talk about this and that they say, they look at the banking system and say, oh my God, the banking system has lost a few hundred billion in deposits over the past year. Everyone is leaving the banking system. That's not correct. Um, What's been happening is that, largely because the Fed is doing quantitative tightening, the Fed is shrinking the amount of money in, in the banking system. Just like QE expanded, it at QT uh, shrinks it. Um, it's actually not easy for someone to take money out of the banking system. For example, if I take money out of a bank and put it in a money market fund, the money market fund then has the money, so it doesn't really disappear. Mm-hmm. The one place, the one way it can disappear, though is through the reverse repo facility you mentioned. The reverse repo facility is a rate control tool operated by the Fed. And so it's actually how the Fed raises interest rates. Now, for example, let's say the Fed wants short-term interest rates to be 5%. How does the Fed actually do this? What they do is they set the reverse repo facility offering rate at 5%. So that means that anyone who has money who wants to make wants to lend it to someone, they always have the option of lending it at 5% to the Fed. Now, the Fed, you know, the Fed has a money printer. They can never default. So, it's a risk-free overnight loan at a 5% annual rate. Now, if I'm an investor and I can lend at 5% to the Fed, well, obviously, I will not be willing to accept anyone any, anyone borrowing from less than 5%, right? So, that's how the Fed uh, controls interest rates. They, they offer an up op- They offer a risk-free investment option through the reverse repo facility. Now, the reverse... It's basically the floor for for interest rates. The Fed, though, only trades with a certain counterparty. So, only the money market funds can access the reverse repo facility. So, over the past few years, a lot of money has flowed into the money market funds. And, uh, well, the money market funds, they have all this money and they want to invest it. But they look around into the universe of investments they can buy, and they can only buy very conservative investments, they're not seeing anything that's that's really attractive to them. So, they go and they put money in the Fed's reverse repo facility, and that's why it's grown so much. It's been pretty stable for the past year, about, you know, I'll say $2.1 trillion. So, um That though, when we look at the rise and fall of the uh, reverse repo facility, that's the real marker of whether or not money is leaving the banking system. Uh, If I take money and give it to a money market fund, the money market fund can simply lend it to someone else, and then the money stays into the banking system. But if the money market fund takes the money, and then puts it in the reverse repo facility then that that actually does um take money out of the banking system but so far you know it's been stable for the past year i expect it to go up maybe meaningfully in the coming coming months but so far that, that hasn't been uh it's been stable for the past year you you do yeah, expect, expect that I, uh, that more yeah, yeah the, i think well there. so We have a debt ceiling episode, right? So when you have a debt ceiling episode, people, money market funds also like to buy treasury bills. They've been buying fewer and fewer over the past year, but they still own some. Now, no one wants to be caught with a treasury bill that, you know, that gets defaulted upon. So you have some risk averse behavior there. So that's going to push people into the uh, reverse repo facility. And, And later on, of course, um, you might have the federal home loan banks. So, okay, so the federal home loan banks have been borrowing from the money market funds to lend to the banks uh, during the uh, the March bank panic. That's gonna die down in the coming months. And that means again, that more money that was being lent to the home loan banks will end up back into the reverse repo facility.
4: Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest.
6: love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine, and I look forward to getting on the air.
4: I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic the creative spark more than ever. Listen to math and magic on our very own iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
5: Oh hi, I'm Rachel Zoe and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women. And this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
8: If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. From the trenches, we share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people, and we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to marketing school every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry, I'm late, everyone. It was an accident at the factory.
3: Okay. All right. So when, when money flows into there, that's money that is not in the banking yes. system. And so a lot of that, I mean, if you consider the, uh, the, the total, um, uh, new, new monetary creation from quantitative easing since like 2020, a good chunk of that new money would be in the reverse repo facility. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is yeah.
7: So that correct? this is actually, you know, just for the people who are worried about banking banks, losing their deposits, uh, Two years ago, you had articles in the uh, in Bloomberg where the banks were like, "I have too much deposits, get out!" Right, right. and so that's when they, all the people were like, "Okay, I can't, I can't put my money in J.P. Morgan. I'll put it in the money market fund. And the money market fund then puts it in the reverse repo facility. So that, that's basically what ha- it's like. The it's like the drain, the overflow valve for the financial system. And a lot of Fed officials will point to that and be like. How can we have not enough money in the banking system when there's so much sitting in the reverse repo facility? Remember, that was zero Mm pre-COVID.
3: Yeah. So if we get into a situation where suddenly there's a huge need for liquidity, where, you know, some global event or something, something happens. There's two trillion dollars. The Fed, at any point, they could say, "All right, uh, interest rates of the reverse repo facility are zero percent." All that money floods out, and it buys T bills and Treasuries, goes in the banking system, right?
7: Yeah, uh, the Fed wouldn't try to try to do it that way, uh, because if they if they lower okay. the interest rates, well, then they lose control of interest rates, right? First principle of a central bank. Ha- so the Fed has that affects the economy through interest rates, right? That means they have to be able mm-hmm. to control interest rates. If they change, let's say they, their target is 5% and they shift the reverse repo rate to 2%, well then that means all the all the money would flood out, like you mentioned, but that means that people would be lending at, at rates that are below the Fed's target. So the Fed would lose control of interest rates. Mm. But if the banks needed money, though, they, they could tap it through the federal home loan banks, which is what they've been doing for the past two months. So they would borrow from a federal home loan bank, which is like a government-sponsored agency. And the Federal Home Loan Bank then would then borrow from the money market fund. And where does the money market fund get the money? From the reverse repo facility. And that's, that's what's been happening to the tune of a few hundred billion the past two months. But again, as the panic dies down, that will reverse. So I think that's how the banks have been tapping the reverse repo facility money so far.
3: Okay, so the Fed would not lower the rate on the reverse repo facility in isolation of everything else while they're still tightening or raising rates. But um, so, and so the only way we would see the the rate come down in there is is if they you know start exactly. lowering the rates you know across the exactly board Joe. Well. They okay. need that for
7: rate control. It's their tools. Like if you're if you're a central bank, you try to influence the economy through interest rates. So you got to have to be able to move interest rates up or down when you change your target. So you kind of really, really need to have that tool there so that you can raise interest rates when you want to and lower interest rates when you want to as well. You
3: can't just... What about the the premium? Because it, it used to be, the, the the rate they paid used to be identical yeah. to the floor of the uh, Fed yeah. funds rate range. And now it's five basis points higher That and that's when the money started flowing in there. Would they take I mean, it down? I mean, they could, but
7: you know, uh, five basis potentially points. Potentially
3: to get push money out? So I, I'm still sk- skeptical
7: about that and I'll tell you why. So... In the short term interest rate market, remember, uh, so the ROP offering rate is everyone's backup option, right? So if you shift that backup option yeah. down 5%, then everything else would just trade down 5% five basis points as well, right? Okay. It's kind of like the center yeah. of the of the constellation of interest rates. You move it up, all the other rates move up as well. You move it down, all the other the rates move down as well. Everything trades at, at a spread to the reverse repo facility rate. So it's, it's hard to make it relatively less or more attractive just by adjusting it.
3: Gotcha. Okay. But they could move it down five
7: basis points Uh, to the floor, like you mentioned. Uh, But I just think that everything else would kind of
3: trade down a little bit as well. Yeah. Adjust. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, right now, the yield curve is uh, steeply inverted. Um, the Fed's preferred yield curve uh, um, is the, the near term forward spread. I believe it's the three month to eighteen month. Um, uh, that one recently became uh, became steeply inverted, um, and so this this would indicate the market is anticipating um, something terrible happening. The Fed, you know, pivoting and starting to lower rates again, starting up QE. Um, is the market wrong about this? Is this something pricing in, you know, the uh, the interest expenses for the federal government going up? What, what's yeah, going that, on That's here? a
7: great question. And the Fed has been asked this a thousand times because uh, on the <laughs> one hand, so Chair Powell and the FOMC committee is on stage telling everyone we're going to hold rates at 5% around here for the rest of the year. And the market is like, oh, okay, you're going to cut rates, right? And you're going to cut a lot, right? <laughs> and so... So two things about this. So first is that the market always tries to guess what the Fed would do. The market sometimes it's right, sometimes it's wrong. Over the past two years, it's been really wrong. And it never thought the Fed could go to 5%, and it never thought the Fed could hold as long as it did. So that's one thing. Now the second thing is that so the market is composed of many market participants. So everyone buys and trades in in a different for a different reason. So we can only look at the price action and we tell stories. Um, one common story that the Fed responds to is that the market thinks that we're going to get inflation under control very quickly, and so we're going to cut rates. And so the, the Powell, Powell takes this as an explanation. And so he says that, well, our forecast of it inf- of inflation is different from the markets. We think inflation is going to be stickier. That's why we think we're going to hold rates higher for longer. That's one story. Mm. Another story, and Austin Goose will be... Uh, the, president of Fed Chicago says is that the market seems to think that there's financial distress. And so uh, the Fed will have to cut rates. So that's his interpretation. And then he'd go on to say that if there's financial distress, the appropriate remedy is not to use blunt tools like cutting interest rates, but we could do targeted operations, uh, you know, kind of like the Fed's emergency lending facility they gave to banks, or we could do more, um, Supervision, regulation, stuff like that, it wouldn't be to cut rates. And you can also have market participants who come up with a story and saying that, you know, the market is hedging their bets. So they think the most likely outcome is the Fed staying at 5% longer, but there's also some outside chance of great catastrophe. And so you have 5%, and you have a great catastrophe where the Fed will cut a lot. You know, you, you weigh that a little bit and you get end up with two or three cuts a year. So, people have different stories to tell. Um, my own, my, So that's how people explain it. Uh, my own sense is that I think the market misunderstands that there's just this fundamental sea change in how inflation will work in this country and in the West for the foreseeable future. We're heading into a world where we're going to have higher inflation than in the past. And because of that, we're heading into a world where interest rates will stay higher than in the past. So I think that uh, my own impression is that people are always fighting the last war. They always think that the present and the future looks like the past. And for the most part, they are right because we don't often have big regime changes. But I think we have one now. So I'm with the Fed here, and I think that interest rates are will stay higher for longer this year.
3: Okay. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. One of the biggest drivers I think that people uh, tend to overlook is, um, is fiscal over monetary policy. Uh, and you recently pointed out in a tweet, um, that, uh, projections from the government and private sector indicate, you know, one and a half to 2 trillion in treasury issuance every year for the foreseeable future. Um, And 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 yet the ten-year is at three and a half percent, and meanwhile we're rolling over. um, I don't know uh, a a very low interest rate debt into you know three and a half percent, let's say. Um, And interest rate uh, costs on you know the debt service cost for the government is skyrocketing. It's now almost equal to defense spending. and that's, that's not gonna stop, especially if the Fed is right and they're not lowering rates anytime soon. Um, and you then talked about more of like, a, instead of a, a, a sledgehammer approach, they're more and more leaning towards scalpel-like approaches. Instead of blunt force instruments, well, address the specific issues so do you see a potential outcome here where uh, uh the fed has to restart qe just to keep the government solvent but keeps ratcheting you know tightening everything for the private sector i think that's
7: definitely a possibility so like you mentioned joe the fed and not just the fed but central banks in general have begun to use more targeted approaches in monetary policy i'll give you the bank of england as an example So last year, as we know, the Bank of England's gilt market, their sovereign debt market went haywire. We saw their yields skyrocket. There was some serious stress there. So what did the Bank of England do? They went out, they bought a whole bunch of gilts, so like a mini QE operation, and then they turned around and went right back to hiking. So they viewed that as some local disturbance in their bond market. They fixed it, and then they went back to maintaining a very strict, a very a restrictive monetary policy stance. Now, in the US, if we were to have some kind of accident in the bond market, I think they could do the same thing. Now, I think your deeper question is, you know, what if yields will come really high? How, how, how will the Fed handle that? And I think they could ultimately, if they wanted to implement something like yield curve control, uh, like what they did in Japan and in Australia. So people have done that before central banks can easily do that if they want to. So I I don't actually ever worry of the the government not being able to afford their debt, but I do worry about the inflationary consequences of it. Um, Because obviously Mm. the government, you know, at the end of the day, if no one wants to buy it, the Fed will buy it. But – we've seen what fiscal policy can do it can be very inflationary we're living through the aftermath of inflationary fiscal policy this past two two years and it doesn't seem like it's getting better that that chart that you mentioned where we're we're going to issue between 1.5 to 2 trillion dollars of debt every year that's unthinkable that would so 30 years ago we had Budget surpluses. In fact, we had money. Le- we had money <laughs> left over. The treasury, they went out and they bought higher yielding debt. They bought it back just so they can save the taxpayer some interest rate payment. They're like, we're caring about the taxpayer. Now you never hear people say that again, mm. right? That doesn't make any sense. We're issuing 1.5, two trillion dollars in debt. So that, to me, is is um, kind of like a runaway train. We're, we're going to have a world where fiscal policy is going to be out of control. And um, that's very inflationary for the next coming years. So that that's kind of um, something that that I think is my biggest outlook and my biggest concern for the next decade.
3: Yeah, yeah, that certainly makes sense. Um, Well, thank you so much for joining. I know we uh, uh, we're we're running uh, running short on time here Um, with uh, just one more question for you. with this, with this runaway train, largely due to, I think, rising interest expenses is going to be, you know, a huge story over the next year, two years for the government. Um, trillion dollar coin, premium bonds, uh, or restart, you know, restart QE. All of these just there are different ways. It seems like of accomplishing the same goal, which is making sure the government can spend the money that it's uh, it's trying to spend without. Defaulting, um, and then you said the inflationary consequences of that. Um, but right now we're uh, we're facing you know economic uh, stress. We're facing uh, tightening conditions. We're facing higher interest rates for uh, for consumers, rising credit card debts. So it seems like we have two conflicting stories here that people are going back and forth about. We've got deflation or inflation. Which one of these is uh, is the biggest concern in your opinion, or is it both of them just in different timescales?
7: So, you know, the, the one is related to the other, because if you have a lot of deficit spending, what does that mean? That means that the government is spending money, but who is it spending money? Who's it giving money to? Who's it spending money on? If you have the government spending a trillion dollars or $2 trillion in deficits a year, that money goes to the private sector, right? Government goes and they give social security payments. That goes to the public. It goes and it buys missiles. It goes and it buys whatever. You know, that's money that goes to the households to the general public. And if that happens, the general public has money that they can use to pay down their debt or go and buy stuff. So, I so you know, in, there there could be like a more of a temporal lag. So, uh, let's say you spend money and it takes time to get reach households, but I'm not as concerned of the household debt situation because, like I mentioned, money is flowing from the public sector to the private sector, and it looks like it's going to do that in a very big way. Um, also, I know that just overall, you know, house prices are up. Stock market is still pretty elevated. So people have a lot of wealth. Uh that they're holding on to, so I, I'm not concerned about the financial situations of households, and not to mention, uh, job market is still strong, and people are getting pretty sizable raises.
3: Gotcha. Okay, so it sounds like you you think the larger concern, especially long term, yeah, is yeah. the inflationary inflationary
7: stemming from the public okay. sector flows over into the private sector, right? P- public sector spends money that ends up in the pockets of the private sector. So it's hard for, I think there to be deflationary impulses when so much money is flowing into the mm-hmm. economy.
3: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, thank you so much for all of the valuable information. Like I said, it's rare that uh, you get to hear directly from somebody who's uh, got experience actually, uh, you know, working inside the the belly of the beast. <laughs> and so I really appreciate you coming on today. You are active on Twitter. And um, you've got your blog. I'll link those below. But you also uh, recently have started a a YouTube channel. um, And uh, your uh, channel is uh, Joseph Wang. And your handle on YouTube is FedGuysFund. Exactly right. right. So I
7: give weekly updates on what I think is happening in the markets. And I also give debriefs after every FOMC meeting to help people understand just what went on. So if you guys are interested in that stuff, check it out.
3: Fantastic. Yeah, I highly recommend that for everybody listening. And uh, thanks again for joining us Thanks, Joe. It was a pleasure to be here and great to meet you.
2: It's brand new season two.
4: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest.
6: Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people